Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, our text is verses 18 to 25. This morning we are finishing up chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Uh, We're finishing up Paul's use of Abraham as the example of faith for those of the Old Testament saints and those who are the New Testament saints. His status as the father of all who believe. Paul is really summing up that whole argument here. And he has made such a wonderful uh, argument using Abraham, uh, who is regarded so highly by the Jews. Remember, the whole structure of his argument is to demonstrate to his Jewish audience, as, as we've talked about, he has given much more attention to his Jewish audience than he did the Gentiles, because the, Jew, the Jews have the law of God. They know, they have this intimate knowledge, and yet they still believe that Circumcision, having the law, bearing the name Jew, gains them favor with God. So Paul's argument is, if the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Abraham was a sinner. Abraham was an ungodly man. He was in need of God's grace. That's the whole point. So there is no way in which Abraham could have kept the law of God. Is Even some would go so far, some rabbis would go so far to say is that Abraham had a comprehensive knowledge of the law of God before it was given to Moses, and he was blameless in all of his ways. We know that's not true, but Paul's using the actual scripture, what the scripture says about Abraham, to demonstrate he was in need of God's grace, he was in need of an imputed righteousness that was not his own. And it came through faith. Abraham received the blessing of this salvation, the blessing of this redemption, the blessing of having righteousness imputed to him through faith. He received it before he was ever circumcised, before he ever received the seal of righteousness of faith, is what Paul says, the covenant sign. Before there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile, Abraham was justified before God on the basis of his righteousness. And because this occurred before he was circumcised, Paul says he was the father of all who believe. All are counted as his descendants who have faith. So we have been justified by faith is what Paul is saying. Abraham was justified by faith. Justification only occurs to the ungodly. God does not justify any perfect ones because there are no perfect ones. And so the idea again that the works of the law can save you is alien to the scripture uh, from the Old Testament into the new. The basis of our justification is another's righteousness, another's perfection. And today, as we're looking at this faith that has been expounded thus far, this faith which brings this justification, now we're really looking at the qualities of this faith, the character of Abraham's faith, the character of saving faith, the faith that justifies What are some of the qualities of it? What are some of the characteristics that we see of what this faith does? I know as we look at Abraham, 
And especially looking at his life and as his, at his example, sometimes it can be a little intimidating to us because we look at Abraham and we see the things that God did through Abraham and we say to ourselves, I'm not Abraham. How can we do that? That was then. This is now. God worked in a different way then. Well, we come up with things like that to say, but the fact of the matter is, the reality is, is that God does not work any different than he did back then. And yes, you and I, we're not Abraham. We're, men, we're not Abraham. Ladies, you're not Sarah. We know that. But the faith that was exemplified in both of them is the same faith that God grants to all who are his. This faith that was granted to Abraham, it was a gift. And this faith that was given to Abraham, that was gifted to Abraham, was nurtured and cultivated by our Lord through a variety of situations that Abraham would find himself in, or that he would find himself in, even through his struggles. You know, we're going to see in this text today that Abraham did not waver in believing the promises of God, but that doesn't mean that he didn't struggle, that he didn't have struggles. And those struggles helped to cultivate his faith even more in the promises of God. Ultimately, what we're looking at is how, how was his faith cultivated to where we look back at Abraham and we say, wow, what an example of faith. How was it nurtured? And it was really nurtured, simply put, it was nurtured by the word of God. The scripture says Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. Abraham had confidence in God. Even, even in view of the impossibility of what God was promising him from a human standpoint, he trusted and he believed. And his faith, again, is the same kind of faith that is found in, in us today, that, that is found in those who believe. We say we may not have that kind of faith. Well, we need to, we need to seek out the Lord and, and petitioning him and, and praying to him and asking him to nurture that faith, that it, our faith would grow, that our faith would, will continue to mature. You have to understand that just as Abraham's faith was a gift, so your faith is a gift too. God granted it to him. He grants it to you. It's the same God. It's the same faith. It's the same righteousness imputed to you as it was to Abraham. So as we're looking at the quality of saving faith, we're looking at how that faith was cultivated and how we may cultivate that kind of faith as well. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we are looking at Romans chapter 4, beginning of verse 18, down to verse 25. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 18. And hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised he was, a he was able also to perform. Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness." 
Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, we've come to honor you today, to give you praise, to allow our hearts to be lifted up towards you, giving thanks to you, delighting in you. Father, we ask that your word would nourish our souls, that the spirit of God would apply it to our hearts, giving us such hope, growing our faith, Father, nurturing it, maturing it, as only he can do. We pray that you would do a mighty work in us, Father, that our faith would would be such as what we find in your scripture here concerning your servant Abraham. Father, we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So looking at the character of Abraham's faith that is really being described for us, which is the character of saving faith. Again, he has brought about a very strong argument concerning uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of faith, as we've talked about, and also for the main argument that is running through all of chapter 4, which is being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. This faith is what we're looking at here. The characteristics of this faith. It isn't just a one-time belief and then we move along with our life. This faith is grounded and founded upon Christ himself, the object of our faith, which brings justification, and then this faith continues to believe. And one of the first things that you find, especially looking at verse 18 and what all the Apostle Paul is saying there concerning the very faith of Abraham is that faith believes the impossible. Anything that is humanly speaking that is just impossible is not impossible with God. Faith believes the impossible. Now consider this. In verse 18 we find, In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so your descendants shall be. We read in the scripture, Abraham was 75 years old when the Lord called him. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. He was 99 years old when the promise of Isaac was given to him. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. There's 25 years that Abraham is waiting. Waiting for the fulfillment of of what God would promise him. He says to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and in you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to make my covenant with you. It's reiterated in chapter 15 and chapter 17. Abraham, again, being 75 years old, and especially after you go a number of years and still nothing has occurred yet, he still believed against all hope to the contrary. What was he trusting in? 
How could he continue to believe even in view of uh, this, this large gap of, of 25 years from the time he's given a promise until the time it actually occurs? 25 years. You know, we get impatient with six months, a year. We think the Lord is not fulfilling anything that he promised to his people, especially if you have a trial that goes on in your life and it's lasting for any length of time. We say to ourselves, oh, Lord, you know, either one of two things, either you must be really upset with me or two, you're just not going to fulfill what it is that you said you were going to do. So maybe, maybe I misunderstood. Who knows? We come up with a number of scenarios there. This is 25 years. We want things now. And the way that you, the way that you see the Lord working is it is a gradual, a gradual uh, time. It's a gradual waiting process. Look at I, w- I want you to hold your place. We're going to look at some of the things that that God had promised Abraham, and then some some things in his life that would that would continue to nourish his faith in such a way that that he would, against all hope, continue to believe. In Genesis chapter twelve, we're looking at the very first instance in which in which the Lord had called Abraham. It's the first couple of verses there. We read in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the first instance in which God had promised Abraham. I want you to leave your father's house. I'm entering into covenant with you. And I'm going to to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation, which is implying you're going to have children, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And so Abraham listens to the word of the Lord and he departs. You read, of course, in chapter 13, the differences between him and Lot. But he says this to Abraham, or at this point, Abram, in chapter 13. Looking at verse 14 and following, he says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place which you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So you have, and we're going to look at some more here, but you have these instances in which the Lord obeys Abraham, and then the Lord nourishes Abraham even more with with his word and with his promises, reiterating again, this is what I promised you, Abraham, this is what will come to pass. You have demonstrations of the Lord's protection over him and the Lord uh, just being his security. You have... Back in chapter 12, we didn't look at this, but back in chapter 12, it happens again later that as they're moving into the land of Egypt, you have Abraham that tells 
Sarai at this time, uh, tell people I'm your brother because you're so beautiful and people are going to want to kill me to get to you. And so Abraham lies and then Pharaoh looks at Abraham's wife and, and how beautiful that she is and desires her. But then the Lord struck, struck Pharaoh with, with plagues. And so he protected Abraham, he protected Sarai. This happens again later. But another instance in which God shows his faithfulness, in which God shows his power to Abraham, is in chapter 14. You have in chapter 14 this account of this great battle that had occurred. And the main king, which is the king of Elam, is Keter Laomer. And he is one of four kings that had subdued the other five kings in the plains of Jericho, these particular five kingdoms. The five kingdoms then rebel against uh, Keterolomer, and so he and three other kings go out to battle. And they end, up, uh, they end up battling against these other five kings. They win, and they begin to plunder the cities. Well, when they go to Sodom, they end up taking Lot. They end up taking Lot, many possessions, and then they're on their way back. When Abraham hears of this, now, these five kings could not conquer these other four kings that they were rebelling against. But here's Abraham. Abraham hears that Lot has been taken, all these possessions and these peoples have been taken, so he gathers 318 of his trained men in his, in, in his own camp, those that are in his household, and he goes to battle. Abraham, with 318 did what five kings could not do. How in the world is that even possible? Well, we read in verse 17, Then after his return from the defeat of Keterolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's what happened. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal or a sandal thong, or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, and their Eschol and Mamre, and let them take their share. Abraham knows that this was the Lord's doing. As Melchizedek blesses Abraham, he is acknowledging that very thing. The Lord delivered them into your hand. Otherwise, how do you account for that? Again, Four kings went up against five, overtook them, won the battle. Abraham takes 318 men and is able to do what they could not. God was, was bringing Abraham along, strengthening his faith by demonstrating these times in which he was Abraham's security. He was Abraham's, he was Abraham's fortress, his stronghold. He even says to him in chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. 
I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. He's nourishing the faith of Abraham. This is what happened, Abraham. Don't fear. I'm your shield. I just showed, I, I've shown you what I can do and how, how none will be able to stand before you. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you was the promise beforehand. But you see some struggles even in Abraham's life. He says, verse 2, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you were able to count them, he said, and, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is one of my favorite chapters. Because in this chapter, not only does the Lord say to Abram, don't fear, Abram, I'm your shield. And even though Abraham is, is struggling, he says, oh, Lord, what are you going to give me? I'm childless. Is, is, is my servant Eliezer? Is he, is he to be my heir? Now, you can now just I want you to picture this just for a moment, because this is also going to come uh, here in just uh, another minute or two. If you have this make believe idea of God or these made-up stories, or a God who isn't all-powerful, who can only do so much. Any reasonable person who is especially making up a story would have said, yep, that's how it's going to work. Eliezer, he's already in your house. That's the one I'm referring to. But God doesn't say that. He's like, nope. He's going to come from your own loins. And then when... Abraham and Sarah, they start be, being impatient because, you know, a number of years have went by. And so Sarai says, okay, I'm past the time now. Here's Hagar. Take Hagar as your wife and then let her raise up children for me. And then you have Ishmael that's born. And so Abraham actually does have a son. And, the, and he's going to pray to the Lord and he's, he's going to say in chapter 17, Verse 17, he says, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed at the announcement of Isaac. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, In his heart will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So here's an instance in which there really is a descendant of Abraham, Ishmael. He's there. Surely... If a made-up story would have said, yep, that's who I'm referring to. You already have a son. But the God whom we serve, no. He's going to do something extraordinary. And since he continues to nourish Abraham's faith by saying, it's not Eliezer, you're going to have a son. Well, you did have a son, Abraham, but that's not the one I'm referring to. I'm going to do something even more extraordinary. He's going to come from Sarah. Sarah is the one who will bear you a son. Now, with all these promises of God, you have them just amplified and amplified. And, and Abraham is, is nurse, nurtured by, this, by these, these sayings of the Lord, these, these words of the Lord, his faith is. 
It's growing, even in the time of waiting. And what is he, what is he holding on to? He's holding on to the promises of God, how God has shown himself to be continually faithful, how God has shown himself to be all-powerful. None can stand in his way so that when God says something, Abraham says, you are trustworthy, and I know you will bring it to pass. Even so much as this, back in chapter 15, after he takes him outside, he says, look toward the heavens, count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Abraham believes, it's credited him as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these, he brought all of these to him and cut them in, in two and laid each, each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." It came about when the sun set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the, these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So you have this, this covenant that God is making with Abraham. Abraham's asking, how may I know for certain that this is going to be? The Lord doesn't say, Abraham, I want you to see this. I'm going to lift up this mountain over here. I'm going to put it back down. You see how amazing that was? This is to assure you that I can bring to pass what I promised you. Or Abraham, watch this. I'm going to take the sun and I'm going to move it over here and I'm going to bring it right back. He could have done any of these amazing things. But what does he do? He says to Abraham, I want you to gather these particular animals. I want you to cut them in two, and I want you to set them opposite each other. This was, this was a custom back in the time in which when you made a covenant with another, that the two of you that were making a covenant together would walk between these pieces that were cut up, making an oath to each other, basically saying, if I don't fulfill my oath, let me be as these animals here. But what does the Lord do? He doesn't say, Abram, I want you to walk with me. A deep sleep comes over Abram, and he's, he says to Abram, basically, you stay there. And the Lord makes his presence known and passes through the pieces. And the Lord is swearing by himself, making an oath by himself because there's none greater. And he's saying, Abraham, if I don't bring this to pass, let me be as these animal carcasses here. And that's why the writer of Hebrews takes that whole thing and says he swore by none greater. He swore by himself that he would bring this to pass. 
And so you had so many assurances that was given to Abraham. Even changing his name from Abram to Abraham. Now, depending on who you're reading, Abram means either exalted father or the father of many. But when he changes his name to Abraham, it's a father of a multitude. Changing his name was an indication also, this is what I'm going to do. So he makes an oath to Abraham. He has shown protection to Abraham, given him security, being his shield. And Abraham believes the Lord. And it says, in hope against hope, he believes. Now this hope is the expectation of something desirable. His hope was in God's promise to him, though that hope was, humanly speaking, impossible. It was impossible. But he believed. He believed that he would be the father of many nations according to what had been spoken to him so your descendants shall be. Abraham didn't just have this kind of faith. And we see the struggles that he had. He lies two times about Sarah being his wife, being his wife so that he would be protected. He cries out to the Lord a number of times, How may I know? How can I know? And the Lord continues to grow his faith. Remember what I said. And what he said to Abraham was repeated a number of times. The same thing repeated a number of times. And Abraham believed and he clung to the promises of God against all hope, humanly speaking. For his hope was in the God who creates, the God who brings life out of death. J.B. Fesco says that very thing. Abraham trusted that God could bring life out of death and deliver on his covenant promises. What seems impossible to us is not impossible to him. What he has promised, he will bring to pass. Now, the difficulty for us is not perhaps not seeing the fulfillment of it. Or not seeing how this is already beginning, even in our lifetime, of, of what the Lord is doing. We allow the circumstances of life to cause us to waver. Is this really right? What God promised, he's able to bring to pass. What are some of the things that he promises us? Well, of course, he promises you eternal life through the Son. If God can speak creation into existence simply by the word of his power, uphold all things by the word of his power, send the son so that he accomplishes everything that he said he was going to do. And then he says to you, believe and you will be saved. And yet sometimes we doubt and we say, well, how can that be? Lord, do you really preserve me? And he, he's given us so many examples to say, I speak creation into existence. And you doubt this? You doubt that I can preserve you? But we allow the present circumstances to cause us to waver. But the very thing that Abraham was doing throughout all that time, he was, he was being nourished in his soul based on what God said. This is what God said. This is what I'm clinging to. This is what I'm reiterating to myself. This is what I'm continually reflecting upon and med meditating upon. Here's what God said. He's faithful to bring it to pass. And this is my hope. 
He promises you eternal life. He promises to preserve you to the end. He promises you peace in this life. He promises you joy in this life. Not as the world gives of peace and joy, but his peace and joy. He's promised to secure you and he is faithful to deliver. He's promised that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and he will raise him up on the last day. He's made other promises as well concerning the status of the world. Whether you believe these things take place before his coming or after his coming, the very things that he has promised is that the nations are his. The nations will be subdued. He will establish justice in the earth. And I love, love what he says in Isaiah 9. The very last verse of that section. In Isaiah 9, you have the great promise, uh, the prophecy of the child who's going to be born. Verse 6 of Isaiah 9, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When it comes to the promises of God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We look at the nations and we look at the status of the world and we get discouraged. But here's the promise of God. And again, whether you believe this promise is before he comes or after, it is set in stone and it will happen. For the nations are his inheritance. He rules over the nations. They're his. He will establish justice. He will bring peace. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We have to continually remind ourselves of what he says. Regardless of what we see. Abraham had to wait 25 years. Just for a promise immediate to him. Concerning his family. We want to see progress quickly. But this may occur over a period of time. And this faith. This faith is nourished by the promises of God and this faith trust in the promises of God and that's what you see in verse 19 without becoming weak in faith he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb now Sarah was either nine or ten years younger than Abraham so when in Genesis 17 whenever Abraham hears the announcement that no it's not Ishmael Sarah's going to bury you a son. And Abraham laughs in Genesis 17. Abraham laughs. We read it. Can this, can this even occur? She's 90. Sarah will laugh later. Chapter 18. But he's, he's taking note of his body. He's contemplating his own body. 
He didn't become weak in faith, which is that lacking strength or being deficient, even in view of everything. This, this kind of faith is a faith that is able to sustain even the pressures of life or uh, the, the pressures uh, that come as a result of just the waiting. His faith wasn't deficient. Even taking note of his own body, now as good as dead, he's about 100 years old, the deadness of Sarah's womb, Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And so here's Abraham. Abraham says, well, I'm obviously an old man. I'm 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. We're as good as dead. But he looks at his own body and he says the Lord is able to achieve this he looks over his wife Sarah and he says even considering the deadness of Sarah's womb God is able to bring life he is able to 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 conceive that she will be able to conceive to carry the child to nurture the child as the child is growing in her to nurse the child when the child is born what is absolutely impossible, Abraham believes he can do this. Why? Because God said so. It's really that simple. God demonstrated his faithfulness. God said so. And so Abraham is clinging to that very promise. His faith was grounded. It was resting in the faithful character of God. Again, from the time that the Lord called Abraham until Isaac comes into the world is 25 years. One writer says the discomforting delay became a means of grace and a prolonged occasion for Abraham to confirm he was fully convinced that God would stand behind his word to him. The waiting process is what usually drives us nuts. The waiting. When is this going to happen? This is taking too long. And yet, the waiting for Abraham is what grew his faith and matured his faith. We look at waiting. Uh, we look at the idea of us being patient as some kind of a uh, some kind of a bad thing. Um, we only look at the negative side. I'm waiting for this to happen. I really need for this to happen, and so. Our impatience begins to take hold. And yet, if we could just remember and reflect upon the promises of God, He's always with us. He never forsakes us. He ordains all things after the counsel of His own will. Everything is for the good of His people, even the growing of our faith in times of trial and suffering. Then we can possibly step back and say, Oh Lord, I don't know when you're going to bring this to pass. But, Oh Lord, let my heart be filled with your promises and your word. Let me dwell upon that. Let me delight upon what you have said, knowing that you will bring it to pass. The psalmist had to do that as well. In Psalm 42, he has to preach back to himself, right? 
Why are you cast down on my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. If the psalmist is having to preach back to himself, and he was one of the inspired writers of scripture, it should be apparent to us that we need to do the same. I, I need to preach back to myself what I know to be true. God is the faithful one. For Abraham, he takes into account all these things from a human perspective. But his faith doesn't waver. J.V. Fesco says, Yet having taken account of all these factors concerning his body, the deadness of Sarah's womb, their age, he concluded that the certainty of the divine promise outweighed every natural improbability. This isn't going to happen any other way but by the Lord, and I, and I know he's going to do it. That was Abraham's faith. God would work in a supernatural way for Sarah to be able to conceive and carry the child and nurse the child. And Abraham believed God. And he was continually strengthened by his words until the fulfillment occurred. Even some of the promises that were given to Abraham, he never saw the fulfillment. He never saw his descendants be as the stars of heaven, whereas the dust of the earth, innumerable. He never saw them be able to go into the promised land. But he knew the Lord would bring to pass. The time of waiting, dear friends, is what we're finding here. The time of waiting can be a very vital time for the growing of our faith. Especially when you're in a trial where you have suffering that takes place. Why is it that this can occur? Because you really have nowhere else to go. You only have one that you can cry out to and this one you know is the one who, can, who hears your prayer. The one who acts on your behalf. You know this. And so as you continually cry out to the Lord, Oh Lord, teach me through this. Mature me through this. Let me not bring dishonor to your name. Let me not get bitter in my heart because of the circumstances that are going on. I know that you have purpose in everything that you do. I don't understand and I may never understand, but I know that you do. And what is it that you're doing? You keep casting all your care upon him, knowing that he cares for you. You keep relying upon him, knowing that he is actively working in every aspect of what is going on, even though you can't see it. That's why the joy of a trial or the joy of the tribulation comes usually after you get through it. Because then you look back and you say, I didn't do this in my own strength. I would have waved the flag a long time ago. But the Lord was working through this and the Lord preserved me and the Lord helped me to endure. This wasn't in my own strength. And so then you rejoice knowing that, oh, Lord, look what you brought me through. And then when the next trial comes and you remember this trial over here and you remember how the Lord worked in this over here as you're waiting for this to be over or whatever the case may be, you're, you're invigorated even more. You're, you're strengthened even more to continue this. I know what you did for me here. I know you will bring this to pass again. The time of waiting can be very, very helpful to our faith, even though we may not see it. It did for Abraham. It did for many in the scripture. 
waiting. Things, doesn't, th- things do not happen very quickly as what we would like them to. That's obvious. I mean, if you think about the time in which Christ is promised until the time he actually comes into the world, you're talking a period of almost, what, 4,000 4, years? Until the Redeemer finally comes, who's going to crush the head of the serpent? And we look at the Lord and we say, I needed this yesterday. For the time of waiting, try to see and obviously pray and ask the Lord to help you through those times how you can glorify him and honor him. How how your faith may be matured in him by whatever is occurring in your life. And cling to the promises of God, knowing that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. That's what he's going to say. And for us, for many of us, it's going to be different circumstances. In chapter 8, verse 37, here's what he says. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can also add into that that there are no sin that will separate me from the love of God. There are no circumstances that will separate me from the love of God. There is no trial that will separate me from the love of God. There is no heartache that will separate me from the love of God. There is no struggle that will separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing will separate you. And so in the time of waiting, you remember this. You reflect upon this. You reflect upon what he says in his word concerning his people and what he promised his people even during this life. And I'm going to cling to those promises. You need to cling to those promises. He's able to preserve and give peace. And we think maybe, well, I haven't done that. Maybe I have failed during the last trial that that I went through. Maybe I'm just, I'm not like them. Remember this again. The faith that was granted to Abraham was not his own. The endurance that Abraham had throughout his life in which he exercised that faith in the promises of God, this was cultivated in him by God. You can't do this on your own. And that's why you pray and ask the Lord to continually grow and mature your faith. That the faith that you have, as small as it is now, still clinging to the promises of God would grow. Even even clinging to the promises, knowing that from human standpoint, maybe things seem impossible. So this faith believes the impossible. This faith trust in the promises of God. This faith is grounded upon Christ and that's what makes it so sure. He says in verse 23, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead 
He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. These truths that we are speaking of of Abraham, these truths about the quality of his faith and the character of his faith, this is not just for Abraham. This isn't a work that God just did for Abraham. This is a work that God does not only for Abraham, but for all who follow in Abraham's footsteps, who believe just as Abraham believed. For him, it was credited to him as righteousness. For you, it is credited to you as righteousness. It's credited through faith. This faith has as its object Christ and Christ alone. And that's why, that's why our faith can be so strong and our faith be so sure. And, you know, the writer of Hebrews says we have a sure hope, a steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul. Why? Because it's grounded in Christ. Not in any ability that you may have. It's grounded in Christ. These things are written to encourage us. It's written to strengthen us. It's written for us to stop looking at our circumstances and to raise our eyes and say, your servant Abraham went through much more than I do. And he raised his eyes and he fixed them upon you and you helped him and you persevered him. Father, let me do the same. Help me to take my eyes off of my circumstances. Incline my heart towards you. Let me behold your majesty and your glory. And not look at my circumstances. Not get so bogged down with them that I become wavering in, in my faith. Nurture my faith. Nurture my faith during my trials. Nurture my faith during my sufferings. And you read what the Apostle Paul says that we just read in Romans 8. Through all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We, he says, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How can we be so sure? Because he loved us so much that he sent his son. And that's where Paul goes into, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he has made this promise and he fulfilled this promise, which is the greatest promise. How can we think that he's going to waver on the other promises that pale in comparison to this? Our faith is is grounded in Christ, and because it is grounded in Christ, it is a strong faith. It is a faith that will continually grow because it's founded upon something solid, which is Him. His righteousness, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. He is the object of our faith. You know, the Apostle really brings back to the remembrance, especially of his Jewish audience, some truths that are grounded within the Old Testament here. He says, after using Abraham, of course, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, this, this particular word here that is translated, at least in, in my NASB, as delivered over, is this word 
paradothe. And this word is used two times in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, used twice in Isaiah 53. By Paul using this word here, that kind of language, he's bringing back to the remembrance of his Jewish audience. I'm telling you all of these things. Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness. This was written in the scripture. What was the object of Abraham's faith? What was the object uh, of, of his trust? He says it was Christ who was the suffering servant that you were waiting on. In Isaiah 53, and we'll look at this, uh, uh, the way that it's rendered in the Greek Septuagint, verses 6 and 12, it reads a little differently from our versions now that are mainly based upon the Hebrew. But in chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 6, It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then in verse 12, he says, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out, he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. And interceded for the transgressors. Now in the Greek Septuagint, verse 6 reads this. The Lord delivered him up for our sins. Is what it says. That's how it reads in the Greek Septuagint. Verse 12 reads this way. Because of their sins, he was delivered up. Using the same Greek word. Delivered up. Now he's... He's using this, especially speaking of him delivered up for our transgressions. He's raised for our justification. He's basically saying to his Jewish audience, you know this. This is Isaiah. He's the fulfillment of this. It's his righteousness credited to you. Your faith is in him. He's the object of it. Because Isaiah 53 also says this in verse 11, the verse Of course, prior to what we just read, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And here you have Paul saying he who is delivered over or delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He's really driving everything home now. The quality of Abraham's faith. The honor that you give to Abraham is founded upon the one who came, who was delivered over, and who was raised for our justification. For Christ is the one who will justify the many. And notice there that our justification is tied to his resurrection. In other places, it's, it's tied to his offering. It's tied to his life. Our justification is tied to the complete work of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. For it was in the resurrection that the Father is demonstrating that he accepts the sacrifice of his Son. Christ is being vindicated in the resurrection, vindicated in the ascension, because Christ is ascending into heaven as the God-man to take his seat as the God-man to rule and to reign and to send judgment upon those who were his enemies. Christ was vindicated And all of that 
And it was a demonstration that God accepted his sacrifice. God exalted him because of what he did. So that when we say our faith is in him and he's the object of our faith, there's, there's no, well, was he raised from the dead? Well, he was just a man, didn't he? He just had some good teachings. No, this is the great king who God raised up from the dead to demonstrate that his righteousness is the only one to which God will accept. We believe in him and it is credited to us as righteousness. He's driving that point home with once again reiterating the gospel. Christ is the one who is ruling and reigning, who has conquered death, who has conquered his enemies. He was raised for our justification. And because he was raised, your justification is sure. You don't have to waver. You have a sure hope because God raised him from the dead. Dear friends, God has created all things by the word of his power. He sustains it all by the word of his power. He's done some extraordinary things throughout the scripture that is examples for us that we may delight more in him as we see how he has worked within history of his people. Do you think that God can fulfill what he says he's going to do? Do you believe that? If God says to you, I'm going to give you my peace, is what Christ said, I'm going to give you my joy. I'm going to persevere you in the faith. I'm going to grow your faith. I'm going to help you to endure the trials of life because I'm going to be with you and be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He says, don't worry about the nations, they're mine. I'll deal with them. Be faithful and preach the gospel. Be faithful in living out the faith in such a way that people ask you, as Richard has told us on Wednesday nights, that people ask you of the reason of the hope that is within you. Do you believe that when God says to do these things and God commands us to do these things, that, that God can actually bring about what he says through these things? Has God shown you to be faithful? Especially in your past trials? Then do you believe him now? Do you have a reason to doubt? Do you have a reason not to trust him? If this is true, and we don't have reason to doubt him we don't have reason to doubt his power and being able to use us to accomplish some amazing things while we are here why do we hesitate why do we hesitate why do we why do we allow during our trials bitterness to to still come come to fruition even though we know that God is working in it why do we allow our hearts to be downtrodden because of our circumstances of life when we know that God ordains all things and God is doing something in it? Why do we allow our hearts to become so disheartened as we look over the status of, of the nations and we say, it's impossible. It's impossible for anything to be done now. Look how far gone it is. 
when we know that God says they're mine? Why do we doubt? Probably one reason why we do is because we are not saturating ourselves with the word of God to be reminded of his power and his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his graciousness, his mercy, his love. And this is what I mean. If you only hear the scripture when you come here, then there's a problem. Your soul needs to be nourished much more than one day a week or two days a week so that when these things come, you're not being disheartened because you have fed your soul throughout the entirety of the week with the promises of God. I know this is who you are. I know this is what you're capable of doing. Keep me close and don't let me waver. That's why it is so important, so important to your faith to read and to study the Scripture. This isn't just something that is just said to you. You just need to read and study the Scripture. But why? Why do I need to do that? It seems so boring to me. And if the Scripture is boring to you, then we have another problem. So boring. Why is it boring? These are the promises of God to you. To help you get through life. To help you endure the next trial that will come upon you. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for the testing of your faith. As if some strange thing happened to you. I'm going to. I'm going to feed my soul with the word of God. Actually, I can't feed my own soul. I need to be praying as I'm studying the word of God and asking the spirit of God to feed my soul and to nourish me and to prepare me for what I know is getting ready to occur. I don't know when, but I know that trials come. And when they come, oh Lord, let me remember. Let me remember what you did for me beforehand. Let me remember how you brought me through. Let me remember that I never did anything in my own strength. You know, one of the worst things that you can say to somebody is when they're going through something difficult and you say, well, you're a strong person. You will get through it. You're setting them up for failure because they're not strong. They would have given up a long time ago, but it's God working through them and God is the one who is encouraging them and helping them to endure. And we say to them, God is the one who is bringing you along. And next time when you know something's going to happen, dear Christian, let's, let's study the word of God together. Let's be reminded of what God has done so that you will be reminded of this the next time. That's why it is so important because Abraham is doing that. He's clinging to the promises of God. He's clinging to the word of God. He's not just saying, Lord, you said this to me 14 years ago. I'm really glad 14 years later I thought of it again. If we want our faith to grow, our faith grows, yes, during the times of waiting. Our faith grows during the times of trial. But our faith grows... As we are continually reminding ourselves and studying what God has actually said. If you don't know what the promises of God are, how are you going to cling to them when the problem happens? How are you going to know? You're going to be left despairing. 
Do not neglect the word of God. Let the word of God be as sweet to your taste, as the psalmist says, yes, sweeter than honey to your mouth. You will be nourished by it. The quality of faith that is exemplified in Abraham here that we're looking at, remember it was first granted to him. It wasn't his own. And think of the times in which Abraham faltered. He would have given up much longer uh, before Isaac was even born, much earlier than when Isaac was born. It was granted to him, and that faith was nourished in him, waiting for the promises of God and clinging to his word. So let us pray that God would grow our faith in such a way as he did Abraham. You have a much greater revelation that is given to you than what Abraham had. We think, wow, it would have been great to live then. But look at what you have now. A much more comprehensive revelation of the very character of God than what Abraham had. So study, read, nourish your soul by the word of God. And pray that the Lord would indeed mature our faith and use us as he did Abraham. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for all that you are, all that you do for us. Oh Lord, each of us desire for, for our faith to grow in you. Obviously, there are many times we do not enjoy the process. But we pray and ask that you would help us to endure. We know that you provide all that's necessary to endure the trials. We pray that you keep us close. Not let us stray, not let us waver, not let us doubt, but to keep reminding ourselves of your faithful character. You are trustworthy, and we can have confidence in you and confidence in what you've said. Move within our hearts that we desire your word that we desire to seek you out even more so. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, the psalmist says. Bring that about in us. That we continually long for you and long for your word. Use us for your glory. Use us as instruments in your hand. And may we bring honor to your name during the time in which you've given us here. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.